Thanks for listening to the History Buff podcast with your resident history buff and Berlin tour guide, Artie. If you're enjoying the podcast, then you can really, really help us by liking and sharing the episodes on social media and rating the podcast on your streaming platform. If you'd like to see more History Buff content, then please give us a follow on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube. Links are in the show notes. Thank you for your support. So today I am joined by Sir Barney Whitespunner, who joins me now. Hello, Barney. Hi, um, Hi. Artie. Good to, Hello. good to be with you. Thank you very much for joining me. Barney is a former British Army general that served in Bosnia and Iraq. Before that, he was also stationed in Germany in the 80s, spending time in Berlin, where he got to really develop a respect for Berlin, its people and its colourful and tumultuous past. Since retiring from the army, he has become something of a historian and author and has written several books, including about the partition of India and the soldiers that fought at Waterloo. But the book that we shall be discussing today is Berlin, the story of a city, which, if I'm not mistaken, Barney, is your most recent publication. Yes, it is. Yes, um, it uh, came out um, in hardback, gosh, actually about um, over two years ago. Uh, we okay. brought it in hardback um, during lockdown, which wasn't a great success, but it's now in paperback and doing really well. And it's also an audible version of it um, out on available and audible. Okay, wonderful. Right. Well, I guess let's just get started with a question which I'm very interested to know. What was your first experience of Berlin? It was taking the British military train up from Helmstedt, i.e. from West Germany, through the corridor uh-huh. up into Berlin during the Cold War. And, right. and quite early, well, I mean, but long before 1989, which was the early 1980s. And I was fresh out of university, um, you know, quite naive about the world. And the shock to me of confronting the reality of uh, the of the border um, of the war in inverted commas, because obviously it was the inner German border there, um, mm-hmm. and then coming into Berlin and the contrast between West Berlin and East Berlin, um, going through Checkpoint Charlie, uh, walking the streets, seeing that the sort of gloom of East Berlin, we like the grayness of it, the, the, how how depressed it was, uh, seeing the bullet holes in the in the, in the walls. Um, you know, seeing the understock shops and just seeing this uh, atmosphere of sort of almost of resentment um, against the government, and slightly against the West too. Uh, and it just, it, it sort of got me. It sort of brought me into, it made me grow up quite quickly. Um, and it was, in like, the early 80s was, um, you know, things were beginning to move in Russia, but it was still a very tense time. Uh, and we went to go to East Berlin in uniform, Um and which so made you stand out a bit, but that was part of the uh, Allied agreements. Uh, but it did mean that one actually was pretty free to wander anywhere. So you could, I had a lot of freedom to explore. And that really does sort of gave me a love, a fascination, really, for the, the whole city. Wow, that's so interesting because, yeah, no, my mum my also did that. She remembers going down, I think, that same autobahn down yes. to, 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 to Berlin. Yeah. And I remember her saying that you had to drive at a certain speed. And you had to be in Berlin at a certain time. Very, very interesting. You had to, um, well, there were two, the two routes was exactly that. There was the autobahn and the rail. Um, yes. And on the autobahn, driving up, the East German police used to try and stop your car, but you weren't allowed to stop for them because we didn't recognise them. 
I really yes. recognised the Russians then. So that was actually always quite interesting. A few games of cat and mouse on that. Yes. Yeah. Wait, so you were stationed in West Germany? Stationed then in West Germany and then coming up to Berlin. And then I was stationed in Berlin for various periods during the 80s. Not for particularly long at any one time, but you know, for, for a few months at a time um, on a couple of occasions. So, And then I used to go back to the city as often as I possibly could thereafter. It, it just okay. sort of gets you Berlin. It, it yes, sort of it does. your skin. Very much so. Wow. Okay. So it really left an impression on you. Yeah. And I still get that same feeling when I go there now. You know, when you land at the airport, I actually quite often I'm going to Berlin. I still go on the train. So I just really enjoy it. Uh, and yeah, as you rode into the city or as you come in from, well, what was Tegel now, Schoenfeld, um, you get that sort of idea. I get that idea, that sort of excitement where you get, you, you fight, you feel that tension even now. Uh, yes. You feel that friction. And to me, the whole history of Berlin rally is, it's been one of friction, really, for since the very earliest days. Definitely. And I think that's really the thing that I love about it as well, is that you can also just still feel it, like, yeah. wandering through the city. That's what's so wonderful about it. I, I have to say, one of the things that st- stood out to me right from the very beginning, what, a quote from the book that really, following on from what we were just talking about, was a great quote, which was, a city has ghosts everywhere, medieval ghosts, Hohenzollern spirits, Nazi devils, and communist shadows. And I thought that was a really, really great quote, because I could also see in your mind, probably thinking of how many different ways to say to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, that's always the issue with the book. But what, I mean, the point of that quote, really, is that it's to try and get people thinking about the whole history of Berlin. Yes. Um, And there is, there's a real tendency uh, for people writing about Germany um, in general, Berlin in particular, to concentrate on um, the Second World War and the Cold War. Uh, and I think that is at the expense of that incredibly rich, interesting German history and Berlin history that rarely starts you know, before. I mean, Berlin officially 1273, but was yeah, actually a lot earlier than that. Um, and I think that's a huge pity because I think, A, you don't really understand Berlin or Germany properly now unless you do read into the early history um but also i think it's sort of quite insulting to germany really yes. and quite insulting to berliners to think but you know we that are still being looked at by the outside world sort of through the prism of those of those terrible years and you know, from 33 to 45 and they mm-hmm. were terrible years but they were an aberration um mm-hmm. and you know they're an aberration that's in the past so you know, part of the reason putting in quotes like that is to actually get people to Focus on the whole history of the yes. city, not just not, not not just the 20th century, which was a pretty horrible time for it to be a Berliner. Yes, I I really couldn't agree more. When I when I give tours, I yeah. uh, make a point to say that obviously it is really the Nazi era was really awful, but um, I do make clear that that Berlin and Germany in general has a very rich history outside of the Nazis as well, which I think even, which, which especially also a lot of Germans don't really know about as well. It's interesting that, so one of the issues I had in researching some of the uh, early 18th century and late 17th century Berlin was there are very few books in any language. So, for example, Frederick William I, um, so Frederick the Great's father, so the second king of Prussia after Frederick I, Mm-hmm. Um, the man who lived at um, Koenig-Wolfinghausen. He, you know, there's actually almost nothing on him. And yet, arguably, he is one of the most um, important uh, rulers uh, of, of Prussia and hence later in you know, the foundations of Germany. Um, there was one sort of good biography of him in the 1830s. Actually, a friend of mine who teaches at the 
Humboldt, who's now writing um, and more an up-to-date Bible for him, thank God. But there is a real dearth of sources. It, it's true, and it, it, it's interesting that, um, that that is the case. But I think what's interesting about Berlin and its history is, and this is a quote from um, Neil McGregor, who was um, helped me a, book, a lot with the book, who's a great friend of mine, was director of the British Museum and then worked a lot on the Humboldt um, Forum project. Mm -hmm. um, Neil said that Berlin is one of those cities that's actually very relaxed living with its history. It doesn't try and hide its history. So a, a lot of, or lot, several uh, European cities that have suffered terribly try and sort of rebuild, reinvent themselves as they wish they had been. Mm -hmm. Berlin's never done that. Berlin's always accepted what's happened in the past, built it into its life and sort of got on and said, yes, that is what's happened. That is part of Berlin's history. And, and now moving on, so let me give you some examples of that. So, uh, I mean, the Holocaust Memorial, how many European countries, how many European capitals would put something like that right in the middle of our capital city? Yeah, I'm not, yes. yeah, the Holocaust was, we all know, is the most, probably one of the most terrible events in world history. But mm -hmm. actually, you know, for, for, for Berlin, which hated Hitler, um, uh, and, and never voted for Hitler, never supported the Nazis and suffered almost more than any other German cities, possible exceptions, obviously, like Dresden. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they Berlin has suffered more from Hitler's war than um, almost anybody. And yet here we have front and centre, you know, the Holocaust Memorial. And we look now at the Humboldt Forum, which I'm a great fan of. A lot of people don't like the Humboldt Forum. Personally, I think it's a huge success because what it's done, it hasn't sort of obliterated East Berlin. It's actually said, yeah, there was this period when the city was divided and we had East and West. Um, and we have developed a, a palace, a forum, a building, um, a, a monument, if you like, in the, right in the centre of the city that faces East and it faces mm -hmm. West. Um, yeah. And it faces East in a modernist way. It faces West in a traditionalist way. But it unites the Alexanderplatz with the Unterdendinten. It, it brings you know, the centre of the city together. Mm -hmm. um, in a way which I think is in, in, incredibly clever. Um, and there are, there are lots of other examples um, around, the, around the city, even if we look at the Bundestag, the Reichstag. I mean, that, that, that again is you know an, an attempt to, that is taking a historic building, building that sort of became almost as totemic as the Brandenburg Gate, um, and actually not trying to hide it or change it, but sort of rebuild it and reuse it as it, you know, uh, uh, in, in, it in its current form. I think it's a great strength of Berlin, and I think it comes from the character and the of Berliners and the fact that Berlin has always been this city of immigrants. Really, it's it's never it was you know, capital of Prussia, but it was never a Prussian city, and I think it's really important to get that over. Yes, um, that it's always been itself, and that's why it's so fascinating and so different. Yes, one hundred percent. I really agree with that, and still to this day, you'll find most Germans that live here will say part of the reason why I moved to Berlin is because it's not Germany. Yeah, that's so true, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, Berlin itself, sorry, it's just so interesting because one of the, you know, one of the big problems I think Berlin's got today is, like a lot of other Europeans, is it's got a housing crisis. Oh, yes, yeah, really, really bad. expensive. Very bad. Yeah, in yeah, the yeah. past, you know, Germans would live in wherever they live and they didn't necessarily regard Berlin as a place where you needed to have a second home or an apartment for work or whatever. But that's changed hugely, really, since 1989. You've got so many... German families who now feel you know, they want to have a place in Berlin, they want to have an apartment, and you get yes. a lot of non-Germans. I mean, there's an awful lot of Brits, as you know, who have exactly. Uh, there, so 
um, in one way, that's really good because it actually you know, is putting, you know, because Berlin is so interesting, so much goes on there. It is so active, so alive. Yet on the other hand, you know, I think, and you're speaking from Kreuzberg, I mean, you will know the price of houses and apartments in those blocks in Kreuzberg is just what yeah. Yes, no, really, really crazy. Yeah, I was shocked to read it. And in the book, you say, I think since 2015, prices have gone up 40% or something. something yeah, I can't remember without looking it up, but it's something like that. And fun enough, when I was doing that bit of the book, I actually used a lot of data from the FT um, you know, to make sense. I got the facts right. And it's staggering, quite. I mean, AK has been housed by simulation across Europe and all cities. But housing in Berlin was cheaper, obviously. Yes. You know, so, I mean, no. it had further, and it's, so, but it's come up. So that it's comparable and, and getting to be, I wouldn't say it's more expensive than other cities, but it's it's now comparable and it probably yeah. will get more expensive. No, definitely. Yeah, no, we'll talk more about that at the end because we're going to talk about yeah. how it's okay. been since after um, reunification. Yeah. But the thing about Berlin, its tumultuous history is really, to be honest, actually one of the things that attracted me to live here. Also, yeah. aside from, you know, the style of life and also the parties. Mm. But what was it that attracted to you? Was it the history itself or was it other things as well? Uh, it's mostly well. It's rarely that because it confronted me because I was. It was my sort of growing up, if mm -hmm. you like. It's because it's yeah. sort of become. It's one of those things, one of those periods in your life that you know, sort of stick with you. You can remember almost every detail of. It hit me as a sort of having had a privileged Western upbringing, coming in and seeing what the reality of the world was. And I think that sort of whether that's an attraction, but it's that's what sort of grips me. Then the mm -hmm. history, which I think is fascinating and you know endlessly. I mean still when I'm there, I just go and walk and discover exactly. things all the time I, I hadn't known. Um I think also the the idea that you're never judged in Berlin. Um yes. and I think that's particularly probably why people like you and your generation love it so much. And again there's quite a good quote in the book from Christoph Stirzel, I think, who um said that you know, the moment you arrive in Berlin, you are a Berliner. A yes. typical Berliner is somebody who's just driving at the railway station. And it's that idea that you can really do anything within you know, within reason, obviously, and um, uh, and, and sort of be yourself, yes. uh, which has survived. And I think that's been there really since the very earliest periods, with exceptions. Um, I mean, there's been dreadful events, there have been dreadful pogroms, etc., but that character, that sort of tolerance of Berliners, are not you know, very law-abiding like so many Germans are. You know, we don't cross the road unless the Ampelmann is green and all yes, that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I notice even the wild pigs in the Grunwald now follow. But the, or so they say, well, it's a good story. But the, um, I mean, but within that sort of framework, which I say applies to all Germany, there is a, a tolerance and a coming together of so many different interests, races, Faith that that make and I think that is why the city is so absolutely absorbing. And I, I I can't think of any other city like that. London sort of gets that sometimes, but London's slightly sort of more staid and judgmental. Berlin never judges you. Yes, and I think you're right in in that Berliners have this very particular way of being. I think in the book you call it Ber yeah Berlin und Villa. Yeah, yeah, and and. It's fantastic, and and yeah. because that's also something that I think that it's it's a common theme throughout the whole of the book, the the kind of Berliner characteristics, which I think yeah. is super interesting. Um, I mean, I and... think um, Berlin and Villa is almost, and it it's almost more sort of a a resistance to being told what to do. It's almost yes. a defense of what I've just been Despite describing. being German. Despite being despite German. Despite being and German, liking, precisely. Yes. And actually, you look at Berlin. I mean, Berlin has 
um, had, um, well, five, arguably six revolutions. Um, if you take the sort of the Lutheran revolution against Calvinism in 1618. But it's um, it's only in that 1989 was the only successful one. All the others yes. have failed, um, which were violent. The only one which succeeded was the peaceful one in 1989. Um, but the um, it's that sort of resistance to to anybody who tries to interfere with a sort of with a way of life that people really respect and like. And it starts with the early Hohenzollerns. I mean, it starts 15th century with um, against Arntooth, who, who's the you know, thought to be trampling on the, the rights of Berlin citizens. And that's what I actually found really interesting, because I think when most people think Berlin, they think, oh, Nazis, maybe the 20s, you know, and then the Cold War. But I have to say, reading chapter one, there's so many interesting things yeah. Um, yeah. from the very early years. Yeah. I mean, I didn't realise that there were, there had been settlements on um, what is now Museum Island since 2000 yeah. BC. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was always this great sort of you know thing in Germany about how far the Romans got. And, you know, the traditional view is that the Romans never got across the Elbe. And the reason that um, West Germany is West Germany and you could have a cosy government in Bonn in the, in the Rhineland is because that was, you know, where the... For Germany that had been Roman and um uh, and safe, and that once you got beyond the Elbe, you got into Asia, and um which of course is rubbish, it's still Europe. But uh, even Adenauer, Conrad Adenauer, that great man, the great chancellor, said that when he crossed the Elbe, he had to pull down the blinds on his railway carriage because he was he thought he was getting into into Asia. right. <laughs> so you know the there is, but I nobody really knows how far the Romans got. Frederick the Great insisted. That there were Roman remains around Berlin. I don't think anybody's found them. But what is a really interesting culture is that Wendish culture, um, mm-hmm. which was there from you know, very early days. Um, there were Southern Slavs, um, sorry, Northern Slavs, and the um, that is um, yeah is it, it, something which was there for a very long time. And um, the last sort of speakers of Palabian, which is a Wendish sort of dialect or language, really. We're actually still living in Brandenburg right into the 19th century. The, the mm. sort of popular rumour is that the Nazis wiped the ropes. They couldn't bear the fact of having a sort of Slavic <laughs> Germans. Slavic yeah. that, but I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but it is, it is a period, that again is a sort of period of history which is terribly under research. Yes, 100%. It's terribly interesting. Because obviously, you know, Berlin is first mentioned in records in 1237. Yeah. So that's kind of what people sort of say is Berlin's Yeah, but founding. it's pretty bureaucratic. That. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. This medieval history is, is something that I think a lot of people will be very interested to know about. And, and, and the great thing, Arty, also, if you think about it, I mean, what I think is amazing about Berlin, given what its structure has been through, and somebody, somebody like you doing your tours, I mean, you can, you can see medieval Berlin, it's there in front of you. Yeah, some of it's been rebuilt. And actually, to be fair to the DDR, not that badly, some of it, yeah. um, which is extraordinary, really, when you think, well, you know, after the Thirty Years' War and after the Second World War. Yes, after all it's been through. It's so yeah. so so true, yeah. But I wanted to ask, how did you, when you were researching this period, how did you yeah. research it? Were, were you allowed yeah. access to, like, special yeah, archives? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a very, that's such a good question. It's, very, it's difficult to research. Um, I did it through... Um, the help of the excellent Berlin Historical Association, the Geschichte der Verein für Geschichte des Berlins, mm-hmm. um, which we were talking about before. Um, my friend Wolfgang Pfaffenberger, who who is the sort of general sort of, um, well, he runs it really. They've got an excellent archive in the Neue Marstall, just opposite the Humboldt, mm-hmm. 
the also I had um, a wonderful German researcher, um, Sabina Scherek, who's a uh, works for BBC in London and and also worked in Berlin, so he's completely bilingual. Um, one of the biggest problems, somebody like me, is actually not so much for language, it's for script. It's the fracture script, because so many of the records were written in that fracture script. And one of right. the disadvantages to me of a German Enlightenment is that everybody decided they'd go back to writing in fracture script, whereas actually right. the script would have been so much easier. It's very difficult physically to read. Um, but there isn't a whole lot. Um, there are, you know, there are some, uh, there, there are some sort of quite a lot of secondary sources which are pretty accurate, and you can test the accuracy with some documents. There are some, 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 some very good original documents, as you'll have seen from the book. Um, but generally, um, quite difficult. But again, you know, in a way, the city tells slightly tells its own story like that. It almost mm. tells it. Yeah, it tells it to you itself. So it's quite difficult right up until the Thirty Years' War. Um, mm-hmm. After the Thirty Years' War, it starts to get a bit easier, but there's still not nearly as much written um, about the Great Elector. Um, mm-hmm. There's not much on Frederick the First or Charlotte, Sophie Charlotte, yeah, his wife Charlotte and Berg Charlotte. Is that because um, Berlin was destroyed so badly during well, the Well, I think it's because a lot of the archives you know, have, 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 have been were lost in the war. I think just there wasn't... Um, Rather, we're saying beginning modern historians have slightly shied away from from it because there's this awful concentration on the 20th century. Yeah. So I don't think you know there's been nearly as much writing about the 17th and 18th centuries as there should have been. I mean, Frederick the Great's an exception. I mean, Frederick the Great must be almost the most um, had the most biographies of any European king, and some really mm. excellent ones. There's some very good, um, a couple of very very good modern ones. And there have been some very good histories of Prussia, Christopher Clark's wonderful book, Iron Kingdom, which is one of the few English histories that's well tra- been translated into and sells very well in Germany. Um, but before that, you know, there isn't really much uh, on, on Germany in general and Berlin in particular. No, but I think that's what I really appreciate about this book, because mm. it really gives you like a very good overview of Berlin's and also Germany in general's mm. history. And um, I think... Yeah, I mean, this leads on nicely to chapter two to six, which is where we're treated to basically the history and the story of the Hohenzollern kings. They arrive yeah. in Berlin and then start to build up the kingdom of Prussia, um, of which yeah. Berlin becomes the capital. And I think it's really interesting to see the development of Berlin into the capital, because obviously before that, it was just a sleepy fishing and trading post. But, you know, the Hohenzollerns, they decide to make it their capital. And so I think then it's very interesting in the book to then get a good portrait of the Prussian kings. The most fascinating Hohenzollern king for me was actually the last one, Kaiser Wilhelm II. But I also think, obviously, Frederick the Great is incredibly interesting. I have to say, one of my favorite quotes from the book is, he was an atheist who tolerated all religions, provided that their religious practice suited Prussia's purposes. (laughs) <laughs> he was socially liberal and almost certainly homosexual himself and was happy for other others to follow suit. He was also, at least to a point, tolerant of criticism. He believed, as Voltaire quipped, that in Prussia there should be freedom of conscience and the cock. <laughs> Which I think is a great quote. And, and it shows that obviously he was very, you know, I suppose ahead of his time. But also you do mention later that a lot of his progressiveness was for Prussia's greater good. Mm. I think that's so true. And what fascinates me so much, I mean, looking at Frederick the Great from the perspective of Berlin, as opposed to, you know, his uh, European Prussian monarch. But from a Berlin point of view, what interests me so much about Frederick is that 
he drifts apart from Berlin. So mm. whereas his father and grandfather, Frederick I, have concentrated on making Berlin the royal capital and aggrandizing it, so it is suitable to be the capital of the kings of this rapidly you know, increased kingdom of Prussia, which, of course, you know, by 1700 was over about three times the size of what you know, Brandenburg had been 100 years before. Mm-hmm. Um, Frederick the Great is sort of isolates himself from Berlin. He lives out at Potsdam or Sanssouci, as you obviously know. Um, he surrounds himself by a sort of French-speaking elite. He regard his sort of model seems to be Louis the Fourteenth and Versailles, but on a mini mini scale, on a much more approachable and actually attractive scale. I mean, Sanssouci is the most lovely place. I mean, it's yeah, it really is. It really is. It's gorgeous. It's so crowded. Now. It's actually finding a quiet time. And it's yes. Like, but it, it, yeah, you can just get a real feel for his life, and you think, gosh, you know, actually, what a civilized guy he lives out here with his gardens and his dogs and his friends. But, and it's a very big but, he drifts apart, or Germany is drifting apart from him. And yeah. Berlin, during his reign, begins to be the German capital. So, whereas Frederick the Great doesn't even he won't speak German, he says it's a barbaric tongue. Yeah, you know, he's speaking French. He's dueling with Voltaire. He's playing his flute. Actually, in Berlin, you're getting people beginning to write in German to really look at German culture. And to me, the beginning of a German Enlightenment that really comes to the fore 50 years later is in Frederick the Great's reign. Um, and it's very apparent he doesn't actually go into Berlin much. I think he goes into Berlin, something I put it in the book, I think it's like 12 times. So, and this is where your, you know, your Mendelssohn's and your Lessing's um and 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 your um your highness and that and your your shinkles and your your humboldts are beginning to to to, to their focus is german the german language the german culture it's not um this sort of european pan european sort of french um culture that the the frederick the great espouses and you can see why as an absolutist monarch it's attractive to him um, because if you like, it is the culture of absolutism. It's a mm-hmm. culture of, it's Rococo, it's over-the-top opera. I mean, I think the story of the Berlin Opera under Frederick is fascinating. And, you know, it's really very funny, you know, the rows he has with his opera directors and his composers, you know, yes. wanting to override, saying, no, 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 that's not opera. You know, uh, and because he interprets opera in the sort of very grand, sort of static um, French model, whereas you know, some of the modern, the, the contemporary Berlin directors want to have it with movement and more lively, more music, and starting to adapt. They're starting to adapt things like German folk music you know, into their compositions. And Frederick absolutely is sort of affronted by this, you know. Um, so it is that to me is a hugely interesting aspect of this. Um, and not knocking what Frederick the Great does for Prussia. I mean, he he, he creates Prussia. Um, and yeah. he basically creates a modern Germany. With mm-hmm. interestingly the tools, the army, and the the money that his father, this very underrated and underwritten about Frederick William the First, um, has amassed for him. And uh, who would you say was your favourite Prussian king to to study up on? The Great Elector, um, the great without elector. any doubt. Yeah. Okay. So he comes to power after Thirty Years' War. He rebuilds a city that's been completely um, trashed. I mean, it's been reduced to almost the size of a large village. Uh, it's lost half its population, similar to it did in 1945, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, the Great Elector is, to me, is one of those really inspirational European monarchs. Um, for why? Well, A, he's very able. Practically, he is a, a doer. He's incredibly energetic. 
uh, he it's really him who moves from Königsberg. He never liked Königsberg, which was the traditional capital of Prussia, um, not least because they were Lutheran and he was a Calvinist. Um, but the, the, Königsberg was, was difficult. It didn't. The, the, the Königsberg never really accepted the Hohenzollerns as rulers of Prussia until rather later. Yeah. Um, but he's also incredibly enlightened, the great elector. So he sees the persecution that's going on around Europe, and he opens Germany's and Berlin's doors, Germany's, sorry, Prussia's and Berlin's doors, to these persecuted minorities. So when Louis XIV revokes the Edict of Nantes in eighteen, I mean, sorry, in sixteen eighty-five, I think, um, the what does the great elector? He does. He doesn't just say, "Oh yes, you know, you're welcome in Berlin." He actually sends a large embassy to Paris where people can physically go. So if you are a Huguenot who's being persecuted, most of the Huguenots actually were Calvinists rather than Lutheran, which is probably mm -hmm. why he did it. Um, and then they're given financial aid and transport and moved to Berlin and set up with shops, offices, land, whatever. Yeah. Um, and it's an extraordinarily... I'm mean, amazed, actually, that Louis XIV didn't do it. But it, it is an amazingly um, far-sighted um, approach. Yes, and he does the same with the Jews. So when the Hatsfolds are going for one of their periodic um, pogroms against the Jews, which they do regularly, when when everything seems to be going wrong in the Hatsfold Empire, they seem to have a go at the poor old Jews. Um, and so uh, what the Great Elector does is again he opens Berlin's doors to Jews from from Vienna. Um, so by the end of his reign, by about seventeen hundred, when he dies, but before that, but I mean by seventeen hundred, the population of Berlin is about twenty five percent French. Uh, and about two three percent Jewish, which, given the contemporary attitudes to Jews, is is an ex those are extraordinary figures. Of course, they're welcome because they are industrialists in the defining industry in the contemporary terms. So, yeah, you know, they're traders, artisans, metal workers, cloth workers, that sort of thing. When obviously a long way before any sort of major industrial concerns. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And that's really the start of Berlin's, you know, when it really became, uh, or, I mean, it's always been a sort of city of immigrants, but when it's had all of these outside influences, and it was really kind of ahead of its time. And in chapter seven, mm. this is from 1871, you talk a lot about obviously Bismarck and, you know, the yeah. formation of Germany, which in itself is very, um, is very interesting. Mm. So Berlin obviously then becomes the imperial capital. But then you talk about the SPD, the start mm. of the First World War. But something that I got from this chapter is that something that rings true today is that, as I said earlier, Berlin is not Germany. There's a good quote where it's, it said, Berlin was becoming a woman's world, a world without men. Berlin has been a lot less oppressive to women than many European cities. Women had practiced as doctors since 1876, when Franziska Tiburtius set up a women's clinic and women had studied at the university since 1908. But this was different. This was women now moving into areas that had previously been solely male preserve, which I think is super interesting, really. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. I mean, again, well, two two comments around that. The first is I think, you know, that shows Berlin, the tolerance of Berlin. And yes. I think Berlin was ahead <clears throat> of the rest of Germany in that. Interestingly, even though Bismarck, who is you know, people sort of love to hate, I mean, Bismarck actually, for totally expedient ends, a bit like Frederick the Great, I, I accept that, but actually his his, his social his, his social policies are far more tolerant um, yes. of um, groups of people who might previously have been thought to be disadvantaged. I mean, he has a real row, obviously, with the Catholic Church, which he loses. Um, but I think Berlin's history, to me, has been as much defined by 
by women. I mean, the Hohenzollerns were very good marriers. And if yes. you look at how Brandenburg and Prussia come together, it's through ever dynastic marriages. Um, there was a bit of love in there somewhere, but not not much. Um, but also, you look at how, say, something like the First World War is remembered and defined um, in Berlin now. It is through Katja Kollwitz, uh, who exactly um, her Pieto in the in the Neue Wache is you know, now a German memorial. It's through the diaries of women like Christabel Bielenberg. Um, it is through you know th that sort of a recollection. Even you go into the Isherwood's novels, which people, which are great and are wonderfully evocative. But again, they're sort of slightly, you know, it is the sort of Sally Bowles type who sort yes, of exactly. in the 1920s. Yes, yes, you know, yes, Ishwood yes. actually with it, with, went to Berlin because he was gay and he couldn't, he couldn't live the life he wanted in London. But the, um, I think the First World War, that period um, from 1918, really, to be honest, right up through the 20s, there were moments of better times but you know the early 1920s in berlin were absolutely miserable as i say it was a woman's world you know it was a really tough women's world and yes. of course having got through that then it was replicated in 45 and if you look at those pictures of uh Trumacron, you know Trumacron, actually women yeah. showing the rubble after 45 people will think that's sort of wonderful and you know fantastic and aren't they great well they are but Think of the misery that represents. I know. Actually, in fact, where you've had to do it because there's no men around. They've all been, been, been killed or carted off to Russia. So I do think, you know, to be born a, a woman in Berlin in 1900 gave you a pretty wretched life. Um, you would have seen probably your father and maybe your brothers killed in the 1418 war. Yes. You would have been through that terrible period of inflation, lost your savings, probably a house not had a job, senior family on the verge of starvation in the 20s. You'd have been there through the Nazis. And you might, to be fair, to the in the early 1930s, people thought the Nazis offered some form of, um, of a better life. And it wasn't only, I think, by about 1937, 1938, they came to, came to realize that they didn't. They're Berliners. And even in the 33 election, Berlin never voted for the Nazis. But only a third of them did. Um, interestingly, the center of Berlin's never voted right wing it's always been the outskirts of, and it was the outskirts yes again. and so, that's still still true today as well still true today absolutely yes. yeah and the um so um and then you know if you're a, a poor woman in born 900 she's 45 in 1945 probably lost her husband and a son in the second world war um she then has to suffer if she's in east berlin she has to suffer the deprivations of, of being in, in, in the ddr um and yes. then by the time sort of salvation comes if you can call it that in 1989 she's too old to enjoy it so it's a pretty wretched century. Um, yeah, she's been a woman or a man for that matter in in you know in in, in Berlin, and I think part of that is um, reflected in the fact that you know nineteen eighty nine wasn't universally welcomed in East Berlin. Of course, yes. I think people felt it was cheapening you know what they'd tried to achieve since forty five, mm -hmm. and I I think a lot everybody saw the weaknesses in the in the communist system. But not everybody hated it quite as much as it was yes. to assume. And to some people, it gave self-respect. Um, it gave a structure and a system that they've been lacking. Um, it was generally a peaceful period, apart from 53, obviously. Um, and um, I, I think there was a little bit of sort of cultural arrogance that crept into West Berlin after 89 um, over the East. 
Yes, no, and I have to say, I really agree with that. I mean, going back to you, what you said about the 1920s not being, because I think it does really have such a reputation as being like a good time decade, yeah. but actually it was very hard. You know, there's political instability. Yeah. This is, you know, when the Nazis started to go out onto the streets and beat people up, the economic hardship, inflation, people having to take wheelbarrows full of money down to the market to get, yeah. you know, a piece of bread. Um, it was really tough times. But I think people, I guess, maybe romanticize it just because, you know, it was known to be a very kind of liberal place. You know, you talked about yeah. Krista, for Isherwood who moved there because obviously it was a very um, liberal place to be yeah. and, and very yeah. easy place to be especially if you were homosexual or something like that yeah. but yeah as you say it has two sides to it i absolutely um, agree and it always slightly annoys me when people always say you know in the 1920s berlin how fantastic i mean it really wasn't and again i hope in the book i've i've, I've drawn that out with some of the examples no it's very clear of families um, yes definitely and it comes through in the literature but of a time too um and one of the things that actually always sort of really interests me is just how many uh, authors went abroad in the early in, in the early 1930s um, because they were thought to have sort of denigrated, written against, um, you know, against Germany, sort of in some way demeaned Germany by writing honestly about what it was like. That's very true, and I have to say one thing that especially came through to me was I really especially loved it when you wrote quotes from actual Berliners. Yeah. Um, and that came through for me in chapter nine when I think is the Nazi era. Yeah. And um, I'm just going to read a quick quote from there yeah. because this really summarizes the experience of Berliners and Germans mm. in general during the Allied bombing campaign, which I think yeah. especially also Germans as well really forget about yeah. um, uh, the sort of suffering that they had to go through. And it was really, really a very tough time for people. And so this was written by a schoolgirl in Prenzlauberg actually after the war in 1946. Mm. Um, and they were asked to write uh, an essay about their experiences, which I think is quite, um, must have been quite, you know, traumatic. So traumatic. Yeah, exactly. So this schoolgirl wrote, but over everything lies a nerve shattering tension. There, a close hit, the anti-aircraft guns begin to fire. The shocks become stronger and stronger. The chatter grows softer and the laughter stops altogether. Suddenly a deafening bang. The lights flicker. The room sways. Frightened, we all flinch. The old woman across from me begins to pray softly. Sobbing, a child buries its head in its mother's lap. Its whining hangs in the air like the embodiment of our fear. Hit after hit, each of us feels the nearness of death, perhaps in three minutes, perhaps two, perhaps only one. The young woman next to me stares with dull eyes into the emptiness. Like all of us, she has given up on life. I think that was a very powerful yeah. um, extra. Really. It's powerful, exactly that. And it's, um, you're also right, I mean, the idea of getting school children to write that, you know, it must in itself, making them relive it. And it goes back to saying about I mean, it, it, it was not a good century. The 20th century was not a good century for Berlin. Um, and I hope, you know, the 21st century is it's going to be a fantastic century. And it looks as if it will be. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's the world owes it to Berlin, really. Yes, I mean, it, it, it is true. But I guess the thing about, for example, the Second World War, for me anyway, is that, yes, it was the most catastrophic event in, in human history. But what it comes down to was it was like an intricate web of of individual stories that make up this huge event. And what I love reading this book is that you get a sense of those individual stories. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I think that's um, I mean, what I might do, if I may, is can I just read you a quote I rather like towards the end of a book? Yes. Um, and that is how I finish it. And 
um, it goes, there's an interesting line in the preamble to the Weimar Constitution. The Germans, united in their tribes and inspired by the will to renew and strengthen the Reich in liberty and justice, reserve peace at home and abroad and to foster social progress. And that is a pretty good summary of what many democracies would aspire to. It took Germany 70 odd years to achieve that goal. But in 1989 to 1990, it did so convincingly with a triumph of democracy to which Weimar politicians aspired. The period of autocracy and militarism that had interrupted German national progress was finally defeated in 1945 in the West and in 1989 in the East. There is much talk in Germany today of political polarisation, of both the left and the right becoming more radical at the expense of a centre, much as happened in the late 1920s, and of the East and the West beginning to drift apart. It's even more important then to focus on what Berlin represents now, much as it did back in the 13th century a place that is united in its tribes. Slavs or Romans, Christian or pagan, Catholic or Protestant, Calvinist or Lutheran, monarchist or republican, enlightened or reactionary, militaristic or peaceful, Marxist or fascist, socialist or conservative, native-born or immigrant, they were all of them, they were or are all Berliners. And Germany has long had in its capital city the model to which it aspires as a nation. And I think that's quite important for the capital of a united Germany. Uh, and I think it's something which you know, Germany is now coming to respect and um, uh, and, and be proud of. Uh, and I just, as I say, I really hope this is you know, now a fantastic century for Berliners because um, and, and get some, we get away from sort of aberrations of the, of the past and, and, and on to um, continuing with traditions started in the Middle Ages. Yes, definitely. No, I have to say that that last um, paragraph in the book is is very good. And it really sort of sums it up nicely, because it's respecting the past, but looking forward to the future. Yeah. Um, and um, no, I think that's very important. And I love this city, because I love being among the spirits, going back to, you know, what you say at the beginning of the book. And I mean, I, I guess coming from someone who was here, obviously when the city was divided to have that yeah. kind of um to, to be able to have both perspectives i'm so jealous of that because i also i had someone on my tour last year he was former american uh military yeah and we were we did the tour and uh we were talking and i i told him and his 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 wife um you guys should go to uh teufelsberg you know the the uh, abandoned the, the, the listening man, station yeah. yes exactly and and go to the uh, mm -hmm. abandoned li listening station on top which is former us military mm -hmm. and he was like that's where i used to work yeah <laughs> <laughs> which was so crazy yeah. and i was like yeah, yeah that and, yeah. and and i think he did go there afterwards and it must have been yeah. so because it's now actually an artist colony um yeah. And yeah. uh, I haven't so that been up there for ages, actually. Fun enough, I must go next time I'm out there. Some people would obviously say maybe Berlin hasn't changed for the better. Me personally, I would love to have gone back to just post reunification Berlin and see what it was mm. like. In because yeah. obviously you still had a huge difference between east and west, mm. and you know the east of Berlin sounds really cool. And I don't know, I would have just loved to have seen it when it was like that. But yeah. um, but you know, it's uh, it's it's changing. Um, and you know, part of the reason why I really love this book was because, um, yeah, I love the, the spirits of Berlin's history because, you know, the spirits are the things that make me feel alive and part of the history being here, you know, but this book really brought to life other spirits of Berlin, which I didn't really know, not that I didn't know existed, but you know, that I paid less attention to. So, uh, that's something I really appreciated about it. Well, you're very kind, Artie. Thank you very much. 
Nothing pleases authors more than to hear people being played about that book. Uh, no, it was a fantastic there. book, Barney. Yeah. Um, and listen, anyway, I think that's probably all. That's all from me, anyway. No, no all I can say is thank you very much. Um, they've been very interesting talking to you. Um, I'm delighted that um, you're there in Berlin taking tours because you know, the more people, the merrier. And it is, it's, it's constantly um, surprises and pleases me how many people come up to me and say, um, you know, we're just off to Berlin now. We're just going to go. And, yes. Uh, so it's uh, it's basically, and I think uh, I I haven't actually got the most current figures, but certainly it was in the top two most visited cities in Europe. Um, yes, would be surprised how that's going to work out. Yes. Oh, it's great to chat to you. Thanks. Thank so you much. very much. Good luck with it all. Okay. All cheers, best. Barney. Thank you Bye. so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.